you can kind of intuitively figure out how these drugs are going to work and how changing the dose will affect the response. The funny thing about loop diuretics is that they're really a different animal. They just don't work that way. Hello, my name is Dr. Kat Chatfield and I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ. I'm Stephen Aniston. I'm a cardiologist in Vermont, in New England, the northeast part of the United States. And we are going to be discussing an article that Stephen has written recently for us with some of his co-authors, which is about how we use loop diuretics in practice. And uh, I was the editor for this article. And what struck me when I first got it was, oh my goodness, how have I been using loop diuretics wrong for all these years? So, so Stephen, could you sort of talk us through how you came to write this article and how it's sort of born out of your experience in practice? It seems like this concept of the threshold effect with these diuretics is, is a secret that gets carried by a, a few people each generation. And I was very lucky. In residency, I worked with a guy named um, Michael O'Shea, uh, who was a great nephrologist. And he was my clinical guy when I did my nephrology rotation. And he was one of these guys who just knew this data and taught it to us. And I thought it was fascinating. But I didn't really think about it too much till I became a cardiologist and had to use these drugs daily, uh, many times a day. And I wondered why no one knew this secret. So I've been trying to spread the word ever since. So Stephen, can you, for the benefit of, of listeners, can you tell us what the secret is about how loop diuretics work? So the, the primary concept is what we call the threshold effect. And, and this is not intuitive at all. I think we all have intuitions about how the world works and it's kind of this incremental or proportional uh, response of the world to us. So if you think of a volume knob on your radio or the accelerator pedal in your car or even just putting spices in your food, a little bit does a little and more does more. And the world, I think we just expect it to work that way. And that's true as clinicians for drugs, certainly. We expect lower doses to have a small effect and higher doses to have a bigger effect. So think of warfarin or morphine or metoprolol, and, and you can kind of intuitively figure out how these drugs are going to work and how changing the dose will affect the response. The funny thing about loop diuretics is that they're really a different animal. They just don't work that way. So the concept here, this threshold concept, is there is a magic dose for each person. And below that dose, you get really no effect. It's essentially giving a placebo. And above that dose, you get essentially the full effect. So you really can't incrementally or proportionately uh, change these drugs and their effect. You can either turn them on or turn them off. And it's very unusual to think of a drug working this way. I think that's where the confusion comes in. Mm -hmm. and, and why is it uh, physiologically that it, they work like that? Oh my God, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. I have no idea how that works. Yeah. I'm really, I'm kind of a worker bee, I have to say. So I, I know how they work and I've done the research that I need to do to understand their effects clinically, but I have no idea what's happening under the curtain there. So even if uh, us frontline clinicians may not understand the, the physiology behind it, the dose response curve is well established in the evidence. Is that fair to say? I think this particular effect is, I think, well established. So if there's a Beatles in this area, it's a Craig Brader, who I think starting in the late 70s, spent about 30 years working out the pharmacodynamics of loop diuretics. And he's done an incredible amount of work on this. I think he just retired a few years ago from Indiana. Um, and the evidence, I think, is fairly well established. There's not much room for controversy there. The, the dose, dose response curve is really what the dose response curve is. There's not, uh, it's not, there's not a lot of room for interpretation there. It's, Great. Okay. So once we've understood the underlying science, uh, then it completely changes the way that we think about dosing loop diuretics because they don't work in the way we might typically intuit, as you said, uh, drugs working. So what's the implication for prescribing? 
There are many. The, the fundamental implication is you need to find the correct dose. You need to find a dose for each patient that's above their threshold. And everything else really flows from that. Um, if there's a hard part of this job of, of changing the way you think about loop diuretics, it's, it's that, trying to figure out what the dose is that's above the threshold for a particular patient. What turns on the spout? Mm-hmm. And you called it a magic dose earlier, which I really liked. Um, and then in the article, you describe how to assess if you've reached the magic dose. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What might you see in the patient? What response you might expect? I think, so here in the States, furosemide, the brand name uh, furosemide is Lasix. And I'm told that that name comes, it's a shortage of last six hours. So I'm not sure if that's apocryphal or not, but it's a useful thing to keep in mind. So if you take a dose of torsamide or furosemide or bumetanide, you would expect that if you take it at 8 a.m., for example, you'd start peeing at about 8.30, uh, maybe a little bit later, but it would last for somewhere between four and six hours. And what that typically looks like is having to go to the bathroom every 20 or 30 minutes, Um, And the volume of urine, especially for someone with excess fluid, can be really profound. It can be two or three liters, especially in the early phases. Okay, so you're looking for a short, short, but dramatic effect. Exactly. A a common source of confusion. This is really a great thing for for patients. So I think we teach patients how to think, um, which is a funny thing to say. But if we tell them we're giving them a urine pill, they will come back and say, yeah, I peed a lot. But they don't really think about how would I evaluate that. So teaching them to look for this response, this this six-hour response, rather than I pee all day or I pee all night, uh, is critically important. So those other responses, peeing all day or all night, are really indications that you're not doing a good job with the diuretic. And then I think for me in in practice, one of the challenges is that when you dose a diuretic like that, and I think when in the past I've uh, managed to dose diuretics up to the magic dose, even if I did that unconsciously, um, you know, that's quite um, a challenge for patients, especially older patients um, with mobility issues, for example, um, you know, to experience that kind of diuresis is, is quite a challenge. So I think as previously as a clinician, I've then dialed back on the dose thinking, well, you know, can I reach this kind of happy medium where, you know, they're, they're peeing and they're offloading fluid, but they're not kind of having to rush to the toilet every 20 minutes. But from what you're saying is, well, well no, you can't because then you're not actually doing anything to offload them. That's, that's right. If you're using a therapeutic dose of a loop diuretic, you're, you're expecting to get that six hours of pretty intense urine output. It's almost unavoidable. And so then I think this comes on to the next um, clinical implication, sorry, clinical implication that, that you outline, which is um, what to do once you've achieved that diuresis um, and patients are really managing to, to sort of offload some of this excess fluid, um, which from my reading of it is to, to consider stopping your loop diuretics um, and then to kind of go on to uh, as needed dosing. Could you talk us through that a bit more? Absolutely. This is one of the more controversial things that we talk about in the article. And we think it flows unavoidably, really, from the effect of from this threshold phenomenon, the, the magic dosing. So given that we can't really dial back the effect of a loop diuretic, that if you give it, you're going to get the full output. The next question is, really, how do we manage how much we're going to have somebody pee? And if we want them to pee less, if cutting back the dose won't work, since you're really moving to a placebo with a lower dose, how else can we achieve that effect? And really, the only way to do that is to decrease the frequency. And there are many, many ways to do that. So you could just prescribe it every other day. You could prescribe it every third day. Um, but what we've done and been very successful with uh, in our practice, all, actually all three of our practices with our co-authors, um, is move to as-needed dosing, which is easier than it sounds, I think. But we look for some target. So either weight or a clinical indicator uh, like edema. 
uh, or shortness of breath or fatigue. And if the patients feel these symptoms or see the edema or have a weight that increases, we have them take the dose on that day. And if they don't have these indicators, they don't take the dose. So this is not a foolproof uh, approach. And this is where the controversy comes in. So some folks cannot have symptoms that they're headed for trouble and they can end up in trouble. But for the most part, this is a pretty good way to keep people well managed and out of the hospital and not uh, over diuresis, which is really the concern that we worry about. If you're making somebody pee a lot all the time, uh, you can get them in trouble that way just as easily as you can get them in trouble by under diuresing them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so trying to aim for uh, a diuresis that, that's kind of balanced for them, uh, but understanding that you can't really do that effectively with the dose because of the way the on-off effect, and it has to be done by reducing frequency. Um, and I think that's a really important kind of um, sort of mental change for, for clinicians to kind of sort of understand how that balance works. So talk to us a, a bit about um, if you've managed to um, achieve the threshold dose, you're seeing this diuresis, this frequent peeing in the short time interval, um, but the patient is uh, still symptomatic from their edema. Um, what do you do then? Because from from what you've said, increasing the dose isn't going to make things any better. There's, this is where it gets tricky. You need to figure out what the cause of the edema is. So oftentimes it comes down to patient factors. So they're drinking too much fluid. So we're trying to dehydrate them. And it turns out some folks are rehydrating as aggressively as we're dehydrating. So we're pumping out fluid with the diuretic and they're pouring it in by drinking you know, 13 glasses of water and coffee and tea and beer uh, every day. And it doesn't really matter what we do in that context. They're going to end up still with excess fluid in the system. Um, sometimes it turns out the reason that we can't get the edema under control is that it's not due to interstitial fluid. So without getting annoying here, um, the, there are three spaces and we kind of have to get a bit technical for a second. So we were very lucky to have Dr. Erickson working with us as one of the authors on this paper and he's an incredible nephrologist. And he was pushing this point to us over and over and over again that there are these three compartments where fluid lives. So. Uh, there's the intravascular space, intracellular space, and then there's the interstitial space, which is extravascular. And edema is excess fluid in that interstitial space. So if the reason that your edematous isn't because of excess fluid in the interstitial space, then diuresing is not going to help. So that would be venous insufficiency or lymphedema, uh, some medications like dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers or the glitazones in diabetes or uh, simply just dependence or altitude or heat or humidity. There's a, there's a thousand reasons that somebody can be edematous and they might not respond to diuretics. But once you've determined that you're looking at true edema, so too much volume in the interstitial space, then these drugs should do the job of pumping fluid out. And then we need to make sure that the patient's compensated in other ways so that they're not drinking too much fluid or taking in too much sodium. That they're eating a healthy diet. You've got their heart failure if that's the cause. We've got that treated appropriately so they're on the right meds, they're exercising. Now, all these factors can help. If that still doesn't do the job, then we can increase the frequency of the diuretic. So instead of taking it once a day and lasting for six hours, you can take a second dose six or eight or 10 hours later and, and get a second six-hour diuretic effect from the same dose. So that goes back to we can increase the dose, but the way to do it is by increasing the frequency. So actually then sometimes the sort of... Um, the split dosing that we often see happening in practice, you know, take 40 frizomide in the morning and 40 at lunchtime. So actually, although we may not be doing that for um, the correct um, sort of pharmacodynamic reasons, that actually might be a, a kind of effective way in practice of achieving this, this diuresis. 
Exactly. Assuming that the 40 milligrams is above the threshold, that would absolutely work. You'd get double the diuresis potentially. Okay. So it's making sure that we're at the threshold and then understanding how to increase the effect if we need to through frequency or decrease it through frequency. Okay. That's really helpful. Just as an aside here, I think the common mistake in that split dosing is to find the magic dose, which let's say it's 40 milligrams, and then assume you can split it over the course of the day and get the same effect. And that, that's where we get in trouble. So 40 milligrams works. Uh, taking 20 milligrams twice a day won't work, assuming 20 milligrams is below the threshold. Sure. So it's no point, like you said, it's no point reducing the the amount you're giving. You've got to reduce the frequency or increase the frequency. Yeah. Okay. That's That seems to me like the really key message here. Okay, um, now, and if you do um, have someone who, uh, sorry, I'm trying to read the questions, but I can't because the Skype box is in the way, so I'm just trying to move, sort the computer out. So we've talked about um, how, how loops work, um, we've talked about the threshold and trying to achieve the magic dose, and how do we know when that magic dose has been achieved, um, and then we've talked about um, people who seem to be achieving diuresis but whose edema is not resolving um, and once we're sure that it really is in the interstitial space and that what we do need to do is remove more of that fluid we can add an additional dose which is above that threshold um, it's so much better than I do thank you no no I'm just recapping <laughs> I'm just recapping uh, and we've talked about patients who, who achieve diuresis um, and who then you know we need to maybe cut back on the frequency of dosing to make sure that we're not over diuresing them and, and drying them out and wrecking their kidneys um, and so how do you know when to start reducing the frequency like how how can we as clinicians you know how can we assess okay we've achieved diuresis uh, are we looking at symptom resolution? Are we looking at kind of weight? How might we do that? Or is that too big a question? It's not. I think, I mean, we're always trying to work towards fewer medications. My baseline philosophy is that doctors are dangerous and drugs are dangerous. So I'm always trying to minimize what it is that we're doing to folks. Um, if their kidneys are working well and, and they're healthy otherwise, then often they can do fine without a lot of intervention from us. That's obviously not always the case. But I'm always hoping we can get to that circumstance where a person's just stable on their own without us having to do a lot of intervention. So I'm always trying to look for reasons to cut back uh, on the medications, including the loop diuretics. Um, it's try and try again is really what it comes down to for me. So we're looking for really symptomatic relief more than anything, keeping the edema down in the legs, making sure they're breathing comfortably, that they have uh, a reasonable weight that's not fluctuating terribly, that they feel healthy, they have good energy, all that stuff. Okay. So really just going by the individual patient and then just being aware that, that we're going to have to play around with the frequency a little bit until we until we get it right for them. And that it's okay if, if that is for them regularly not to take loops at all, but to have them there when their symptoms start to recur or if their weight starts to increase. Is that is that fair? Absolutely. Uh, when we've had some feedback on this article, one of the things that uh, readers have said, but this, is this just about heart failure or is this kind of edema of any cause? Um, could you comment a bit on that? Sure. It, it, the effect, the all-in-one phenomenon is universal. The, the kidneys don't care what the cause of the excess fluid is. So as long as you can confirm clinically to yourself that you're looking at true edema, so excess volume in the interstitial space, um, the, the, the loop diuretic effect will be the same regardless of the underlying cause. It's critical, obviously, to figure out the underlying cause. We, we completely skipped that in our article and we focused purely uh, on management. Um, but in, in treating these patients, you need to do the, your homework and figure out what it is that you're dealing with and what the cause is. But once you know what the cause is, if it's due to excess interstitial volume, 
then loop diuretics will work essentially the same way, regardless of the underlying cause. This is not unique to heart failure. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about um, changing to maintenance dosing with um, with a thiazide diuretic and, and as-needed loops? Could you talk a bit about that? Sure. There's two parts to this answer, and I, we can edit out the bad parts. So there's kind of the old way that we used to do this. So in 1972, this is one of my favorite little tidbits of information. In 1972, there was an article published showing that metolazone uh, was great for treating heart failure if used as needed. Um, and the study was really what they did is they compared low-dose hydrochlorothiazide uh, with high-dose metolazone, and they found that the high-dose metolazone was more effective than the low-dose hydrochlorothiazide. And that led to everybody using metolazone all the time to treat heart failure, which is probably the most common cause of edema. But it turns out, obviously, that was not a fair comparison. And metolazone is a tricky drug to use and very unpredictable, similar to uh, furosemide, by the way. So furosemide is very unpredictable, which is the reason we don't like it so much. Um, but moving away from metolazone and towards something more predictable, which in this case is chlorothalidone, has really worked wonders for us clinically. So my standard approach here, if, especially if I feel like I'm overdiuresing somebody with loops, is to put them on chlorothalidone. So a thiazide diuretic is about 25% as effective in terms of urine output as a loop diuretic. So as a gentle background diuretic, chlorothalidone is fantastic. And oftentimes we'll just put them on chlorothalidone and watch. And if they have exacerbations where they get a little bit of demitus every once in a while, that's when we would add a dose of torsamide, just as needed. That's where the as, noted, as needed dosing can come in and be really effective. But having that background is, is helpful for two reasons. So it keeps the, the uh, low-dose diuresis happening, that 25% uh, of the loop effect constantly happening in the background, but it also very much potentiates the effect of the loop. So if you take torsamide with chlorothalidone on board, you get a much stronger diuretic effect than if you take torsamide without chlorothalidone on board. So you mentioned there, uh, Stephen, that um, one of your benefits of using chlorothalidone is its predictability. And you mentioned there that, that furosemide is, is quite unpredictable. And yet um, in the article, and I think uh, in my experience, this is anecdotal, it's certainly probably the most widely used loop diuretic in clinical practice here in the UK. Um, so can you talk to us a bit about, um, you know, what are the issues are with using furosemide and, and how you might go about choosing a loop diuretic? It's true here, too, in the States that furosemide is dramatically the most commonly used loop diuretic. I think it's just a habit. So everyone has gotten into the habit of using this as the standard drug for treating this condition. Um, this We're moving away, I think, here from strong evidence and we're moving more towards opinion or um, just a summation of, of the evidence. So we've gone through a few thousand pages of journal articles putting Putting this article together. I think that's the reason we do this, this work is so you don't have to read 3,000 pages to know how to use a diuretic. But the more I got buried in this in this research, the more clear it became that furosemide is really not a great first choice as a loop diuretic. The major issue with furosemide uh, is the very unpredictable bioavailability. So but taking an oral dose of furosemide, you're getting somewhere between 10 and 90 percent of the effective dose that you think you're getting. Wow. It's, and, and it's 10, different 10 from patient to 90%? Patient. It's sorry, so widely variable. It's a huge range. Wow. Yeah, yeah. sorry, Karen. It's, really, it's incredible, yeah. So we summarize that. We say it's, it's half as effective. So we average that number and we say it's half as effective as the IV dose. So the IV dose is obviously f fully available. Um, but that 50% number is, is a fake number. It, it's, it's a huge uh, skew there. Um, but the nice thing about the other loop diuretics, primarily torsamide, which is the best studied of the other three, is that torsamide is essentially 100% bioavailable. When you take 40 milligrams, you're getting 40 milligrams. 
So we love it for that reason, if for nothing else. But there are many, many other reasons, some of which are esoteric and, and very clinical. So you're less likely to get uh, hypokalemia. Uh, you're less likely to get low thiamine, which turns out to be potentially important, although that's theoretical at this point. You get less cardiac fibrosis compared to furosemide, which again is a theoretical benefit, but it is measurable. Um, we do see better symptom relief from torsamide than we see from furosemide. You also get aldosterone inhibit, inhibition with uh, torsamide, which is a really nice benefit. And this is, again, not very well described, but it is described in a number of uh, research articles that you're going to get some inhibition in aldosterone, which is a great side effect. Um, and we see lower readmission if you're using uh, torsamide than if you're using furosemide. So those are kind of the background reasons why it's so beneficial, I think, to be leaning towards torsamide over uh, furosemide. It also has a longer duration of action. So you're going to get more urine output with torsamide than with furosemide as well. Because you're going to um, spend longer over the therapeutic threshold. Exactly. Yep. yep. So at a minimum, even though this, it's all kind of circumstantial, it's a very strong circumstantial case in my mind. Um, and at a minimum, I think it certainly doesn't support the use of furosemide as first line, even though we've all been taught to use that. That's just the default drug that we use as a loop. But I don't know why. That's interesting. And certainly, I think in the UK, furosemide is, is very prevalent. Um, bumetanide is also relatively well used, um, particularly in secondary care. I think less so in the community, I think because it's regarded as somehow more effective. Um, I guess probably because most of the time we're actually giving people an effective dose of um, bumetanide and reaching that threshold um, and actually switching on the diuresis where they've probably been on sub-therapeutic doses of furosemide. That's just my anecdotal kind of opinion of practice that I've seen um, but but torsemide is is very um, below the radar here in the UK and um, it is in it is on our formulary but um, I think there's going to be issues around uh, cost and availability uh, as well which is obviously different across the different health systems we talked about how uh, some of loop diuretics such as furosemide um, have a uh, variable bioavailability um does that do we know what factors affect that on a patient to patient basis and will it change over time to, so i'm not sure what would change the the percentage of bioavailability in a particular patient so i assume it has something to do with gi absorption but the evidence doesn't support that guess if you have edematous gut for example we used to always say use higher doses or go to iv and it turns out that's not really accurate uh, those higher, you don't need higher doses if you're a dentist. The same dose still works. So, I'm not sure why it would be that the bioavailability would differ from patient to patient, but it clearly does, or, or whether it would change from day to day. But as to the question of uh, does this is the dose always the right dose? Is the magic dose going to change in a particular patient over time? For the most part, I think clinically we can assume that the dose is the dose. Whatever the magic dose is, is likely to stay the magic dose essentially forever. And there, there are some important caveats here, but if I respond to 40 milligrams today, I'm likely to respond to, respond to 40 milligrams a month or a year from now as well. The, there is some mild tolerance that develops. Uh, the kidneys get a little resistant to uh, a dose over time, but it's a very small clinical effect. And again, shouldn't really affect the dose that you need to use. It, it's possible if you're right at that border of the threshold that you could tip over from being therapeutic to subtherapeutic, but Typically, I wouldn't expect that. Um, the major factor, loop diuretics are very funny this way. They don't work based on serum concentrations. They, they work based on intraluminal concentrations within the kidney. So it, you, they need to get across the glomerulus in order to function, which is an unusual place for a drug to work in the body. So if you have 
poor renal function, poor renal blood flow, which you can kind of estimate with GFR, um, if you've got poor renal blood flow, you're going to need higher doses to get that same effect. Um, and that's where the problem comes in and the dose would change. So if someone's GFR goes from 70 down to 30, uh, you'd expect that you would need to potentially double or triple the, the diuretic dose to get that same intraluminal effect. That's where we'd expect to see a major change in what the magic dose would be. But short of that, uh, typically the dose is the dose. And this is true, by the way, in heart failure and hepatic failure uh, and other causes where we'd expect there to be changes in the dosing. It just doesn't change the dose. Okay, so it seems clear that the um, we understand the science and the, the sort of basic action of loop diuretics. Um, however, it seems like there's still some uncertainty about how we might best use them in practice, particularly kind of comparing one to another. Uh, you mentioned this as circumstantial evidence. So what needs to happen for us to get real clarity on how we can use these in the most effective way for patients? This is very frustrating for us uh, in, the, in the field here, trying to do the work we, we don't I don't think have the clinical support I take that back the, the experimental support to really underlie how to best interpret the all-in-one response and apply it clinically so what we've really tried to do in this article um, is to follow as carefully as we could all the implications of the all-or-none phenomenon and how we would apply that to our patients um, but mostly what we're doing is is trying to tease apart what might be a clinical effect and what might not be a clinical effect and what makes sense then we try it on patients and you know, this is all anecdotal from our experience. Um, there is good evidence, again, on the all or none phenomenon, but applying it clinically is really frustrating. And this is such a common condition, and it's potentially life-threatening that it's just very frustrating that the work hasn't been done. Um, but the work is being done, thank goodness, and I'm hoping within the next few years we're going to have more clarity on, on how right we are with this approach. Again, we know the science, uh, applying it is where we potentially get in trouble, and there are so many open questions there. That was Stephen Annisman, a cardiologist and co-author on our paper, How to Prescribe Loop Diuretics in Edema. It was absolutely fascinating for me to hear about the threshold effects. That's definitely going to change my practice. The article has stimulated a lot of interest. There's been lots of rapid responses. If you have questions for the authors or comments on the article, then please do leave a rapid response on bmj.com. Subscribe to BMJ Talk Medicine on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Kat Chatfield. Thank you for listening. Bye.